Wow, guys, that was truly amazing. Y'all never quiet yourselves, so that was <laughs> very impressed. Okay. Uh, and I uh, want to remind you, even that when we do that, when we're saying hi to the people around us, uh, that is not just a transition moment, okay? That that is a part of our service, that you connecting with the people around you is a very real and tangible expression of what we believe about the body of Christ, which is that we are a part of this thing together. And so connecting with each other is a very real part of what we're doing here in this service. So just, I don't know, chew on that. Okay. Uh, the, p- the passage that we're in today, we're going to be continuing in Nehemiah, this book in the Old Testament. It kind of comes right at the end of the Old Testament. And if you remember, uh, I'll kind of give you just a, a reminder of, of where we are in the book, maybe a little bit of orientation in case this is your first time here. Uh, the people of Israel, right, God had planted them in this place called the Promised Land. And he'd given them this city, Jerusalem. It was a city where uh, he, he built his temple, where God uh, said a temple should be built to him and where the people came and gathered together to worship God. But because the people of Israel were s- continually disobedient, even after God warned them over and over and over again, what happened is that God sent his people into exile. And after being in exile for 70 years, according to his promise, the people were gathered back into Jerusalem. And this story is about that gathering back of God's people to the city of Jerusalem. And the temple had been rebuilt by an earlier group of exiles, and then this group of exiles came together, and they built walls around the city of Jerusalem so that the worship of God could be restarted. But what we've been talking about is that God's plan for what was happening in the city of Jerusalem was always so much bigger than walls being built, that walls were just a means to an end that what God desired and what God desires is to build up his people. And that's what we've really been talking about in Nehemiah is the way that God has been working in his people to to build them. He's been forming them. So two weeks ago, we talked about how God uses these trellises in our lives, right? These kind of rhythms or rituals uh, to ground us deeply in his grace for us. And Sunday morning is one of those. And last week we talked about story, how God has called us into, he's called us into being a part of a story that's so much bigger than ourselves. And that story, that the themes of, those, that, of that story is God's faithfulness and our unfaithfulness and God's continued faithfulness even in our unfaithfulness. That that's the story that you and I are a part of and it's the same story that these people were a part of back hundreds, thousands of years ago. And what we're going to be talking about this morning is covenant. The covenant is another way that God roots his people in grace. And we see that in our passage this morning. As the people of Israel, okay, renew their responsibilities to God. And we're going to talk about the difference between the way that the people in this passage re-engage with God's covenant Right, under the old covenant is what we would call it. And how we, as people who live on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, engage in what scripture calls the new covenant. So I'm going to invite Zach Lorenz is going to come up. And Zach is going to read our scripture for us this morning. Uh, don't worry, there are way fewer names this week than in previous weeks. So, Oh, sorry, Zach.
Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 28 through 39. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on, the holy, on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We observe ourselves, uh, we, ob we <laughs> obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit, of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, the, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Thanks, Zach. Pray with me. Father, we, uh, we're thankful for your word. And God, we, we trust that you desire to speak to us today. And Lord, that from these words that were written uh, hundreds of years ago, that you have something for us this very morning. And so we pray through your Holy Spirit that you would uh, that you'd bring that to our minds, Lord, and to our hearts. I'm going to pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I just want to acknowledge for us that uh, as we read through this, it's a little dry, isn't it? Right? Uh, maybe if you're new here, you're wondering how on earth is anything from this going to be relevant for my life? And maybe if you've been here for a long time, you're wondering, 
how is anything from this going to be relevant for my life? I think what's, what's important for us as we kind of frame this morning is that none of, none of what we just read makes sense outside of the context of covenant. Outside of the context of covenant, what, we're just, what we just read it seems like a bunch of dusty old rules. But what's happening here, because it happens within the context of the covenant, is this is, this is the people of God reclaiming their responsibilities as the people of God. And so for us to get a kind of a grasp on that, we're going to talk a little bit about what a covenant is. And just for context, the idea of covenant is really not that strange to us. We, we live with it and live around it all the time. A covenant really is a contract that lays out the responsibilities of relationship. Or another way to say it would be that a covenant makes explicit the implicit conditions or responsibilities of a relationship. This is true uh, like in a parent-child relationship. We know this, right? That parents have certain obligations to their children. If you didn't know that, it's true. Uh, and I remember w- w- walking out of the hospital, you think, is it, you're just gonna let me walk out with this, with this human? Like there's no contract, there's no like, don't you need to tell me some stuff? Like I'm taking this person home. There are more responsibilities that get put on you when you take a dog home from the kennel. Like, it, you know, you have to sign stuff. Not at the hospital, they just let you leave. But it's because we, <laughs> it's true guys, right? It's because we understand that the parent-child relationship has responsibilities that are inherent in it. There's a covenant there. And it's true the other way, right? From children to parents. That as children, we have responsibilities to our parents. That as they age, we have responsibilities to take care of them. And as, as hard as that can be to figure out, the tension that we experience in thinking about that is an indicator that we know that there's a covenant there, there are responsibilities there because there's a relationship there. And it's true outside of the family, right? It's true in a teacher-student relationship. You know, any good teacher will tell you, well, I learn things from my students all the time. Yes, but if a student told you they never learned anything from their teacher, that would be a problem, right? Because there's a responsibility there that's a part of the, of the student child, or the parent, what am I saying? The student-teacher relationship. We could talk about that in all kinds of ways, right? It's true for doctors and patients. It's true in all kinds of relationships. And what a covenant does is it makes explicit the responsibilities of the relationship. covenant is a contract in a relational context. And all throughout scripture, what we see is that God has chosen this human framework as a way of expressing to his people what it looks like to live in relationship to him. From Adam until now, all of our interactions with God as people are governed by covenant. Which I know you're all asking, well, how does a covenant work? That's what we're going to talk about, okay? So covenants uh, have like a long lineage in human history. The Hittites, which was an ancient people in the ancient Near East, uh, had a whole kind of structure for covenants. And then other kind of ancient civilizations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they all used covenants as well. But this Hittite covenant really has a lot of parallels to the way that the Bible uses the idea of covenant. So we're just going to talk a little bit about historically how these covenants operated pretty exciting stuff. Okay, so uh, in the covenant, there are two parties to a covenant. There's the suzerain. I think that's how you spell that. And then there are uh, the people. And the suzerain, this was like the king of kings 
was one of the ways he would be known in a covenant. The king above all the other kings. And then the people, they might be represented by a king, but it would be a lowercase king as opposed to the king of kings, okay? And the covenant was the way that these two parties would come into relationship, the suzerain and the, pe- the people, or otherwise known as the vassals. And the covenant would always start with a prologue. And what happens in the prologue is that there's a narration of how the suzerain and the vassal came into relationship. So it would explain, the prologue would explain why the vassal owes allegiance to the king in the first place. So the prologue was a really important historical element that kind of explained the nature of the relationship. Then there are these stipulations. And the stipulations explain what it means for the vassal to be in relationship with the king. So what do the the people owe their suzerain? And it would be things like loyalty, for example, that you would never entertain negative thoughts about the king, that you would not engage in foreign, foreign alliances, that you would pay all of your taxes on time, that kind of stuff. So there are stipulations to a covenant. And then the covenant breaks down in two ways. You've got curses, and you've got blessings. So this legal document would lay out, hey, this is what happens if you fail to fulfill the stipulations. And then it would say, but if you, but if you do fulfill the stipulations, uh, here are some of the blessings that you can expect. Like, you can expect the king's protection. As you're loyal to the king, if you get invaded, the king is going to come and he's going to help you. But if you're, if you're not loyal... I would just say that it could be, the language could be very colorful about the things that might happen to you, you know, body, mind, and soul, uh, for violating the covenant. And this structure is used all throughout Scripture to help us understand our relationship with God. That really, you can think of uh, the first five books of the Bible, of Genesis through Deuteronomy, uh, in this framework, right? That Genesis really is the covenant prologue. It explains how God created a people for himself. And then, you know, he brings the people out of, uh, out of slavery in Egypt, and he gives them stipulations on Mount Sinai. That's the Ten Commandments. And those commandments are kind of worked out through Leviticus. And what we see, and we see this in Exodus, we see this in Deuteronomy, right as the people are about to enter the promised land, is there are curses and there are blessings for the way that they would follow the law. But hey, if you keep the stipulations, God would tell his people, uh, this is what's going to happen to you. And if you fail to keep these stipulations, if you walk in a stubborn, a stiff-necked way, like we talked about last week, right? Uh, these are the curses that are going to come upon you. These are the outcomes of you living in disobedience. And then we see there's this invitation to the people of Israel to come and walk in this. And the rest of the Old Testament is the walking out, the working out of these curses and blessings in the lives of the people as they obey or disobey God. And what we see in this passage is an instance of covenant renewal. Okay, so in chapter 9, 38, it says this. Because of all this, so that's the story that we talked about last week, the story of the people of Israel. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. They weren't making a new covenant, but they were coming to this old covenant that they had already made with God, and they're saying, we're bringing ourselves back to it. We're renewing this covenant. We're recommitting to it. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. 
It was a way of saying these representatives for us are coming before God and are saying we're renewing our responsibilities to this covenant. We see that again in verse 29. To join with their brothers, their nobles, and to enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses. And here's what they say they're going to do. They're going to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. They say, we're going to keep all of it this time. No, really, we promise. And then they go through and they lay out all of these very specific ways they're going to keep the covenant. So they've already committed themselves to the whole thing, but then they go in and they do these, these specific ways. And probably what's happening there is that they're committing themselves to the things they know they have a hard time with, right? It's like when someone tells you, no, I promise I will be on time this time. Um, a person who's always on time doesn't have to say that, right? That's, a, that's what a person who's late all the time says. Uh, that we feel the need to, to promise and make really clear our intention to follow through on something when we know that we're not very good at following through on it. So that's what's happening here. This list that we get of all these things that people are going to do are just the ways that they are already self-conscious of how they often fail in the covenant keeping. And so they're saying, no, 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 really, we're going to do it this time. And this is a way for them of re-engaging in their relationship with God. Can any of you relate to that? That way of engaging in relationship with God? No, 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 really this time. I promise I will do it. That's a pretty terrible burden, isn't it? That weight of keeping the law. That if every time that we sin, our response is, no, 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 okay, wait, next time I will not do this thing. What ends up happening is that we're like those people who run around with weighted backpacks on themselves when they're exercising. Do you know what I'm talking about? I've been before on the trail at Percy Warner Park, and there are people running the trails at Percy Warner Park with weighted backpacks. What are you doing? This is hard enough, right? But that's what it feels like when we're carrying the weight of the law on ourselves is every step is, no, I'm so aware of all of this extra weight that I'm carrying. No, this time, I promise I will do it. And we carry that with us everywhere into every interaction, into every facet of our lives. And what we even tell ourselves is that we're doing it for God. As if that is what God has called us to. Spoiler alert, okay? I'm going to spend the rest of this sermon trying to convince you that that's not true. Because that's, because that's not the gospel. That that is not, when Jesus says, come to me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he's not asking you to, he's not giving you better techniques for carrying that backpack. What he's trying to do is take that off of you. Because that's what he did at the cross. Because what happens after this chapter that we read in Nehemiah is the wheels come off again. In two chapters, in just two chapters, we read that the people fail to do all of these things. They say, no, 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 really, we'll do them. They fail to do them. There are critical commentators who would say, oh, well, the chapters are obviously out of order, right? Because they must have recommitted, to themsel recommitted themselves to these things after all of the problems that Nehemiah encounters later. 
And I would just say, I don't think those people understand people very well. They're like, it's impossible that people would turn this fast. Is it? <laughs> because I know myself. And I know that sometimes it's in making commitments that I, I speed up my, uh, my lack of commitment to those commitments. The weight of the, of the, the, the backpack of legalism that we carry, right? It usually drives us to one of two places. Sometimes we get so burdened by the shame of it, we're just trying to figure out, how do I just get it off? I'm just done with it. You might call that relativism, right? Moral relativism. Th this idea of there being commands that I'm supposed to keep, it's too hard, I don't want to do it, I'm just done. So just, I'll do what makes me happy and try not to be too much of a tool. Great. But here's the thing, is that even when what you're trying to do is take off the backpack, all you can ever do is just put different weights in it. That's the problem with, with moral relativism, is that what we're trying to do is find a freedom from the constraints of the law, but all we end up ever doing is creating a new law. And we tell ourselves that it's freedom. Right, another way that we do this, we just tell ourselves to train harder with the backpack. And what we often do is construct for ourselves a new law. That we, we create a new law that is easier for us to, to measure and prove to ourselves that we're, that we're doing it. So we, we create a law around the law or a law on top of the law. And we even see that in this passage is that if we had time, we could go through all of these very specific things that people say they're going to do, and some of them are taken word for word, word, for word from uh, the original covenant. And some of them are small expansions on that original covenant. And we don't know the hearts of these people, but we have to wonder, is this because the people have a desire to keep the law, or is this a showing forth of their legalistic hearts? And we know that that's possible because we know that it's in us, right? It's in me. And there are different ways that we, d we all do this, by the way. As people who are believers, people who are not believers. As Christians, it sounds like the classic youth group question. Uh, how far can I go? Right? Well, I don't want to technically do anything wrong. But how close to the line can I get? That, that's a question that betrays a legalistic heart. Because what it shows is this, is this belief about the law, that the law is this, is this thing where God is trying to keep what is good from us. And that the trick of the Christian life is like, how close can I get to the sin before it actually becomes a sin? That's just legalism. And believe me, we may not, we may not be in youth group anymore, but we all have ways that we ask that same question in the Christian life, right? Or what we do, and this is often what we do outside of Christ, is we just construct our own new moral system. It might be postmodern or post-Christian, but do not be confused, okay? It is every bit as concerned about morality as the law. Maybe this is just an East Nashville thing, but I feel very self-conscious when people come into my house and they ask if I recycle. Like, of course I recycle. It's, you just can't see the can. Just go into the pantry. You can open it, and there it is right there, okay? I recycle, right? It's very important because if we're honest about the place that we live, that if you came into, well, 
okay, this is, it's okay if you don't recycle, just for the record. This is not about that. But the, in the place that we live, right, there's, there's shame around that, isn't that? There, like there, there's an expectation that that is a thing that good people do. And so if we're going to keep the law here in East Nashville, we are going to recycle, right? I say that just to say that there's a way of creating a whole parallel morality that claims to be free of traditional Christian morality but is in different ways just as stringent. Because what the law does is that the law, uh, the law creates a chemical reaction inside of me. What it pulls out of me is sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. He says, the law told me not to covet. And what I found is that covetousness consumed me. that when you see a sign that says uh, no, well I was going to say no fishing I never fish I don't know why that's the example that came into my mind but that's what it was no fishing what do you, you see people with fishing poles right there right because when you say not to do something it makes us want to do it and it's not because the law is in and of itself evil it's because we in and of ourselves are evil and broken and twisted that's what the law pulls out of us It pulls out of us our legalistic spirit. It either, it's either uh, I will not do that, and I'm going to do the opposite of it, or I'm going to do everything I can to keep it and to prove to everyone else how righteous I am. When neither of those things are the intention of the law in the first place, where the intention of the law was to direct us toward uh, God's promise, that he would keep the law. Because even the Mosaic Covenant, even this covenant with all of these rules that we always talk about, even that covenant was founded on a covenant of promise. Because way back when God claimed a people for himself, he did it with this guy named Abraham. And what God promised Abraham when God made a covenant with Abraham is I will keep both sides of this covenant. That's what God promised. I'll keep both sides of this. And friends, that's what we have in the new covenant. Is that when our when Christ came, our suzerain, right, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he came and he made himself one of the people. That this King of Kings stepped down to become a vassal. He put himself in bondage to the covenant that he created. what the scriptures are so clear about is that Christ kept every one of the stipulations of the covenant. Not just in form, but in heart. That's why the perfection of Christ is so important. Because what it allows us to claim is that he, he kept every aspect of the law, every stipulation. He did it. He did it perfectly. And that in doing that, he secured for us every blessing of the covenant. And what Galatians 3.13 also tells us is that he took the curse. That as someone who had no curse for him, right? There was no curse for Christ because he had kept all the stipulations, but it says that he became a curse on our behalf. 
ultimately, the curse of the covenant was death. And that Christ came and he took that curse upon himself. He removed it from us. So there's no curse left for us, is what the gospel says. There is no curse left for you in Christ. There's no consequence that God will put on you as a punishment of your sin because all of the punishment of your sin has been removed. And that what has been secured for you, what's been promised to you, what's been given to you because of Christ is every blessing of the covenant is now yours. Every one, all of it. The law hasn't been done away with. It's because the law has been fulfilled. And what scripture teaches us is that when you come into Christ, it says when when you're baptized into Christ, that's just, uh, it's a way that scripture speaks about becoming a believer, right? That when you're found in Christ, it says that you die to the law. That you are now dead to the law. There's no more curse hanging over you. There's no way that you could secure for yourself any more blessing than you already have. All of that has been done for us. And that we're now under a new covenant, is what Christ says. And that new covenant means we have a new relationship with God and we have new responsibilities. The new covenant means new relationship and new responsibilities. And the way, the way that we can think about this if we're using our, back, or, uh, our metaphor of a weighted backpack, right, is that uh, you can put the backpack down. Now it's been taken from you. I'm going to read for you out of Galatians 4. Because it talks about this reality. This is Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, right? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's true about you in Christ. And this emphasis on being a son is not somehow in contrast to being a daughter. They're, they're using, Paul's using the metaphor of son because a son in Roman law, which is what he was under, got all of the inheritance. And so what Paul is saying is, man or woman, you're entitled to everything that a son would have been entitled to under Roman law. And, and if a son, an heir through God. That we're able to now call God our father. And that is a new relational reality in the New Covenant. You know that? That in the Old Testament, God uses the metaphor of father to describe himself, but his people never call him father. It's only in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord's Prayer, when he teaches his people to pray and he starts out the prayer with our father, that we are invited into that new reality. That God is now our father. It's a new relationship. God is our Father, and that we are His children. 
which means you are inherently and intimately connected to God. That there's nothing you can do to disrupt that. Just take the backpack off, right? Scripture also teaches us that in this new relationship, we've been given new hearts, is what Jeremiah 31 says. That I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So rather than God's law being this external thing that's imposed upon us, that draws sin out of us, that the law is now something God has put in our hearts and that we can take pleasure in, that we can delight in, that what is most, this is important, okay? What is most true about you in Christ is that you have a, you have a heart that takes pleasure in pleasing God, that you have a heart that delights in doing what God has called you to, that's true about you. And what well, doesn't always feel like that. Yes, exactly. Only someone who, uh, who has a new heart could say that. Because being given a new heart is what starts that war with the flesh, with the sin that still dwells in you. But that war is there because you have been given a new heart. And that changes the law then from this external thing that's been imposed upon us to what now Psalm 119 would call a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Then when we're asking God, God, how would you have me live in this crazy world? That, that his law is a way that God says, hey, this is, this is the moral grain of the universe goes in this direction. And so God's law becomes something that we get to walk in as a gift that helps us understand who we were fully created to be. That's the freedom of the children of God is that now no longer we relate to the law as this thing that's over us, bearing down on us, but now the law of God gets to be a lamp that shows us the way that we would walk. Not, not to get something from God that we don't already have, but with the freedom, because of the freedom of a God who loves us. You see, this, this changes the question, uh, how, how far is too far, Right? Because that question has, at its core, a misunderstanding of the character of God, that God has something good that he's trying to keep from us. And that what we know about our God, because now God is our Father and we are his children, is that God has withheld nothing good from us, that, that the law that he would put around us is meant to direct us in a way where we would find truly abundant life. A light to our feet and a lamp for our path. that we now get to live in the freedom and the joy of doing what's right, not as a burden, but as a gift. Which also, this has amazing implications for what it means for you to be a person who has to make choices in the world. Do you know that? That you now get to live your life in the freedom of making the choices that God has put in front of you without fear that you're somehow gonna displease him in a way that you can't understand. Because right, how often do you guys, how often do we encounter choices where both options seem like good options? Have you guys ever been in a situation like that? Which job should I take, right? They're both pretty good. Should I take this new job? Should I, stay, should I stay in my old one? Where should I go to school? Should I do this grad program? Should I, should I, should I, should I, should I? A lot of times people come to me, well, what should I do? I don't know. Right? that what we're responsible for in making those decisions is asking the Lord, Lord, is there anything in these decisions that is against your, your good for my life, your law for my life? Oftentimes, no. 
Okay, well then how do we make the decision? You have been given freedom now as the children of God to walk in the joy of what God has for you without some secret nagging fear that you're displeasing him, that he's got some kind of like magical plan for your life that if you don't listen hard enough, you're somehow gonna miss it. No, that's not the freedom of children. That God has invited you now into this place of calling him father. That if he has a way he wants to lead you, he will let you, he will let you know. But you have the freedom to, to live out the life that he's laid in front of us. That opens us up now to this grand adventure, this creative, bold encounter with the God who has lavished his love and his freedom upon us. There's a, there's a psalm in one of our kids' children books that says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And there's this picture of a kid running. But that's, that's the picture of what it means to be children of the new covenant, that we've taken off that weighted backpack and we get to say to God, God, would you direct me in the way that I should run as you enlarge my heart? Which brings us here to the communion table. This sacrament really is covenant renewal for us. That's what we're doing when we take this sacrament, is we're engaging in covenant renewal with God. But remember, we're doing it in a different way than these people, right? We're not saying, no, 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 this time, God, I promise I will keep all of your commandments. We're doing something different here. That what we're doing when we come to the communion table is, uh, is repentance. repentance, the, the picture of it in scripture is that uh, we're walking one way and that what the Lord says to us is hey, that is not good for you. You're walking in or walking into sin. And the way that we would know that is that it's contrary to the law. right? The good things that God has given for us. So repentance is, is stopping our walk toward that sin and confessing it to the Lord. Lord, thank you for telling me that. Thank you for making that known to me. I'm sorry that's not all repentance is. Repentance is also a turning away from that thing. We don't keep walking toward it. And again, let me just be clear. That is not the same thing as saying, God, I promise I will never sin again. That's impossible, okay? If that was the condition for coming to the communion table, none of us would ever come. The Lord knows that. He's already forgiven you for those things. The call is that we would let the Lord, as we as we take time here to reflect, that we would let him speak to us and bring to mind for us uh, places that we are walking in opposition to him. But as he shows us those things, we would say, thank you, Lord. We would say, how would you have me walk instead? That's why when we kind of would do this, we call it fencing the table, right? We say that if you are not in Christ, this meal is not for you right now. Right? Because we, we take this meal as a, as a way of engaging in letting the Lord direct us in repentance and in faith. And so if you're not coming in faith, then it's just, it's not for you at the moment. We pray that it will be one day. That's why we also say, if you're telling the Lord, no, there are places in my life that I will not surrender to you, then we say this table is not for you right now. Because it's a place where we engage the listening to the Holy Spirit and letting him turn us. Don't you get stuck in your head about the maze of that, right? I would encourage you to think about that song that we sang 
calling us into worship. But all the fitness he requires is that you feel your need of him. This table is for those who would confess, Lord, I need you. I need you to free me from the burden of the law. I need you to come and be the curse for me, Lord. I need you to secure the blessings of the covenant for me because I cannot secure them for myself. And then when we engage, we engage with a meal. Because that's how covenants were always sealed. They were sealed with a meal. Way back in Exodus, when God comes down and he gives the people the Ten Commandments, you know, on Sinai, what happens right after that is he calls all the representatives of the people up onto the mountain and they feast together. Because the meal seals the covenant. And so what we do when we come to, the, come to the communion table is that we find ourselves nourished with the grace that we need to continue in this walk of repentance and growth in grace. So let's do it. Let's practice it together, okay? The way that we're going to do this this morning, uh, I'll invite you to fold down the kneelers in front of you. You don't have to kneel if you don't want to, but... You can fold them down now because they make a lot of loud noise. So this just gives everyone the chance to use them if they want to. Uh, we're going to play a few songs here. The f- we're going to play a song, and then I'll come back up and we'll take the bread all together. And we'll do another song, and I'll come back up and we'll take the juice all together uh, as a way of building in some time to reflect and to ask the Lord, Lord, are there places that you want to show me sin in my heart? Or are there places you want to call me to new obedience? And I want to give you space to interact with the Lord about those things. And then we'll have a time after we take the elements uh, to respond uh, to the Lord together in worship. So I'll just remind you that our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, uh, he took the cup and he took the bread. He told us that this was a new covenant in his blood. So as we engage, as we pray and we think with the Holy Spirit that we're engaging in this new covenant together. Let me pray for us. Father, would you... Lord, would you speak to us? Um, We just confess, Lord, I confess. um, Lord, I have so often a legalistic spirit. uh, A spirit that wants to prove to you my own righteousness through the law, and when I feel like I can't, that I want to throw it off and run away. Uh, Lord, and in doing so, I hurt myself and create another law for myself. Um, Lord, would you forgive us for the ways that we have done that and do that as a community? Jesus, would you be gentle with us now uh, as you meet us and guide us into repentance? Lord, and and pray for my friends even specifically as they're uh, engaging in this kind of reflection. Lord, we know it can be a dangerous place where shame can really take hold of us, and we pray against that. Lord, that we would get to experience uh, the joy and the freedom of the children of God as we engage in this worship.